You're listening to the Packernet Podcast Network. to restart the game. And this one carrying into the end zone about four yards deep. Here comes Dixon to the five. Left hash marks 10, 15. Hits a hole hard. He's to the 25, 30. Breaks into the clear. Keyshawn Nixon is off to the races. It's Secretary of Belmont. Down the split end time. No one will catch him. It's a touchdown. My goodness. Came into the game. Wayne punched the ball with a great injury. Didn't practice all week. And he just took it right the gut through the heart of the Minnesota Viking coverage unit. What's up, guys? Welcome to Packers Total Access. My name is Clayton. You can check us out on Packernet.com. You can find me on Twitter at Packers underscore access. If you'd like to email the show, you can send a message to Packers Total Access at gmail.com. If you'd like to text the show, you can send a text message to 865-658-5824. I want to thank everybody for the feedback. Um, had a ton of people reach out after we uh, went live last night with Matt Ramage. Uh, Maddie hit me up on Twitter, said, hey, man, you want to do a pod together? I said, yeah. So we uh, hopped on there and um, – Man, it was a lot of fun. It was. You had a little bit of football talk sandwiched in there of, of us just goofing around. And love everything that Matt Ramage brings to the table. The dude's just high energy. He's always in a good mood. Isn't afraid to talk trash to the uh, to the uh, division rivals up here in the NFC North. And just um, every time I listen to his pod, I come away feeling better, right? So when he invited me onto his show and said, hey, why don't we do a, uh, you know, a collaboration like, yeah, bro, let's roll. So I appreciate everybody reaching out and, and and how much you guys enjoyed that. I know there's probably some that didn't um, simply because, you know, sometimes you want to consume content that's just <clears throat> very informative. And I, I do think we covered some important things. I really do. But, again, it was just kind of laid back. We thought we would change it up a bit. And, uh, you know, you're getting into the dead part of the season. Every now and again, you just got to have a little fun, right? So that's kind of the, uh, the approach we took. Now, today's podcast um, – I'm going to dip into a little hitter, a little history, okay? I said Hennessy, didn't I? That sounded bad, right? <laughs> Some of you guys, you're dipping in the Henny, what? No, we're going to dip into a little bit of history, and, and I would say that a good chunk of you guys and gals listening to this probably have never heard of this guy. I know I hadn't, and you guys know I'm, I'm a history nerd, uh, both U.S. history, Revolutionary War history, um, all the way down to the Green Bay Packers. Uh, I'm just anything – <clears throat> where you could take a chance and kind of learn from from the past, good or bad, you know. It's one of the things that, that kind of bothers me in today's society is it's everything bad that's happened, let's forget it. Let's forget it even happened. Let's scrub it from the history books. It's not the way to handle it, you know. You, if you don't acknowledge the way something was, if you don't try to dive into a certain event, a certain topic, how can you get better from it, right? Um, it it kind of goes hand in hand with what we've talked about this offseason and how – you know, uh, I know Michael Lombardi talked about it on his podcast how, you know, you, you get all these draft grades, right? You get all these so-called so experts. As soon as the draft's over, they grade the teams on how well they did. I mean, how egotistical do you got to be to to pretend like you understand scouting more than uh, the uh, the teams, you know, front offices that get paid millions and millions of dollars to do their job, right? But nobody ever grades the the grades, right? And what do I mean by that? Nobody ever goes back and goes, did they did, was their draft get grade accurate? Right. It's just you move on to the next year. And and it's silly. It is because how can you how can you learn whether or not 
you did make a mistake. And if indeed you do, you know, uh, uncover a mistake, how can you look back and go, man, I'm not going to make that mistake again. I know I've got several things that I'm applying to, to my draft strategy, right? My draft board strategy, I should say. And uh, one of the things <clears throat> is going back two years going or going back to the year prior and really digging into the tape. What I learned this year about the Green Bay Packers is they put a lot of stock in the previous year's tape, not the, the last year, uh, you know, of college football that the prospect played, but the year before as well, in this case, 2021. Right. And that, that really showed up to me. So I put it in the notes, put it on the spreadsheet. <clears throat> when I get ready to do the, uh, the draft stuff next year, that's how we're going to approach it. Right. So I want to apologize. You're going to hear me clear my throat a few times. Everything's in full bloom down here. The voice is going. You guys deal with this every year. I know you dealt with it last year when I launched the pod. I will try my best to turn away from the mic when I clear my throat. But this guy I'm going to talk about, like I said, I just about guarantee you've never heard of him. I was going to play an audio clip or a video. I couldn't find anything because it's it's that much of a hidden gem when it comes to the history of football in the city of Green Bay. Notice I didn't say the Green Bay Packers. Guys, this man, Fred Holbert, actually predates Curly Lambeau. And I was blown away. First of all, everything good that comes out of this podcast comes from either the listeners or my wife. It never comes from me, right? And the only reason I found out about this guy, <clears throat> excuse me, is she bought me a book. And we actually seen this book. This is how oblivious I am. When we stayed at the Kohler Lodge, we were up there for the Rams game this year. There was a book in our hotel room. And it was called Green Bay, a city and its team. And I seen that book and I remember just getting giddy like, oh, my God, if if we're in this room for more than 10 minutes, you know, this entire seven days, we're going to be in Green Bay. I'm reading some of this book. That looks amazing because it was a book that that kind of showed you. It told the origins of football in the city of Green Bay, even that predates Curly Lambeau, which we're going to get into here in just a second. But then it would show you old pictures of these locations, Bellevue, um, you know, Old City Stadium. Um, Hegemaster Park, all these places, and then show you a an updated picture of it, which I think this book was written some, I don't know, I think it was sometime uh, in the uh, in the early 2010s, which is plenty, plenty new enough for me, right, when you're talking about going back to the 1800s in some of these pictures. And it kind of shows you, okay, this is what it looked like then, here's what it looks like now. It's just a fascinating book. And Mandy being the awesome person that she is, dragging me through life the way she has. <laughs> she she went, surprised me, and found that book, bought it, and gave it to me for Christmas. So I've kind of dove into it. And, I mean, it's right at the beginning of the book. Um, and that's the title of Chapter 1, The Beginning, Fred Holbert. All right, so what I'm going to do is read just a little bit from this book. And then I've got an article online I'm going to read, give you kind of two different perspectives. And I encourage everyone, if you get a chance, go buy this book. Again, it's called Green Bay a city and its team. So here's how it begins. It says at the dawn of 1895, the population in Green Bay was in steep ascent as new arrivals poured in not only from Europe, but from from within the United States. Grover Cleveland occupied the White House and the country had enjoyed peace for 40 years. So this is 40 years after the end of the Civil War. I mean, we're getting back there now, right? It's funny, 1919 is far enough into history. But when you're talking about 40 years after the Civil War, like you, it, it's it's pretty remarkable. Passenger trains had only recently pierced the woods of northeastern Wisconsin, so they're painting this picture of how Wisconsin was just this um, untouched land, right? Untouched territory, 
And I can only imagine how beautiful that looked. You know, Wisconsin today is just absolutely gorgeous, but imagine it completely untouched. Um, he said the streets were dirt and the sidewalks wood, and both were illuminated by gracefully arcing lamps, which hung on drooping wires traversing the sky about 20 feet above the streets. Football was unheard of in Green Bay until Fred arrived. Fred Holbert was the son of a German immigrant uh, parents who had settled in Racine. He was of medium build, standing about 5 feet 10 inches, Fred's almond face and his foundation on a thick oval jaw and light brown hair parted in the middle, flowed into curly locks at the ears. Kind of funny that Curly Lambo was known for his curly hair as well. Um, as he stepped out of the carriage and into the cold night air, Fred must have wondered about the future and his newly adopted home. In his arms, he carried his bags and in mind, the passion for sport. As he made his way to the Broadway to the Broadway house, he brought with him knowledge of the new game of American football, which had evolved from rugby in college campuses during the 1860s. Fred had learned the game at Wayland Academy in Beaver Dam, Wisconsin, but would soon apply it in Green Bay. He could not have known in 1895 that he carried with him the seeds of the Green Bay Packers. Man, I mean, first of all, I never really slowed down to, to wonder how was football created, right? I knew it was created by, you know, these in these small towns where, where soldiers came back from the war and uh, from, you know, World War One, and they were looking for work. And I believe at the time wrestling might have actually been a thing and, and obviously a whole different <laughs> venue than the entertainment industry it is today. But, um, you know, these players would, would get together and, and they would play a rugby-style game of football. You know, when you think about the origins of rugby, or I'm sorry, the origins of football, and you compare it to rugby, it's very, very similar, right? It's just a little more controlled. It's a little more, <clears throat> hey, let's give each other a second to line up. Okay, you set. All right, now let's play, you know? And, and obviously the passing game and other things that come into effect. But it's really cool how all of this stuff's been in front of us the entire time. I know for I, I'll speak for myself you never really put those things together. You don't look at it and go, wow, that's that's where American football came from. So on college campuses, you had rugby teams, and then it evolved into this other game where they stretched the rules a bit, you know, kind of like when you see the XFL and the, and the USFL, how, you know, it's basically professional football, the way the NFL plays, and they tweak some rules. These guys were doing that type of thing in the late 1800s, right? 1895. It's just amazing. Really, really remarkable. So I'm going to go now to – Packerlandpride.com. And I found this article. Um, I think it's it was written in 2015. Okay. And it's actually got a picture of Fred Holbert and that original team. It's got him with some of the teammates. Uh, you know, one of which I think is really cool. It says guys in the in the 1897 backfield are seated. Fred Holbert <clears throat> standing from left, then Al Vandenberg, Tom Skinnador, I think is how you say his name, and Bert Grossbeck. On the back of the photo written is what is probably Fred Holbert's handwriting. Wow. These guys are identified as, quote, the back line. And one of these gentlemen in the middle, you can tell he is Native American, which is really, really cool. You guys know a, a lot of uh, a lot of Native Americans, um, you know, uh, were, uh, were living in Wisconsin, you know, obviously the Oneida Nation. And, and I probably shouldn't even comment on it because I'm extremely ignorant to the history of Wisconsin when it comes to, you know, Native Americans and how – the entire state was settled and all that, but it's just pretty cool to see way back here, 1895, right? 
you know, like I said, you know, after the Civil War, roughly 40 years after the Civil War, here you've got a Native American with his arms around two white men and this redheaded stepchild looking cat in the middle who was obviously of Irish descent. And that was Fred Holbert. Um, and they were on the football team together, you know, just kind of putting race aside is it's always a cool story. So let's just kind of dive into what it says here. And then we'll uh, we'll wrap this up. I, I just like I said, I don't want to try to go overkill. I could read this entire ch first chapter of the book talking about Fred's entire life, but we don't have enough time for that. And I'm not going to bore you guys with it, nor nor would my accent and reading skills do it justice. Right. So uh, go out and buy this book. I mean, I'm telling you, you would not be disappointed. You should be able to find it. I'm sure it's, of course, Mandy, when it comes to shopping, boy, she'll find anything she wants to find. <laughs> so if you have any trouble finding it, shoot me an email or a text, and uh, I'll make sure she points you in the right direction for sure. But here's what the article says. <clears throat> it says, local author and football historian Dennis Gullickson has extensively researched the town's teams. He noted, quote, football in Green Bay began in 1895 when a Sandlot team organized by Fred Holbert took to the gridiron to defend the city's honor against other, quote, 11s. That's what they called them. Um, from towns across northeastern Wisconsin and Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Town team football continued in Green Bay for the next 23 seasons until in 1919, that year's town team became the Packers. In 1921, the Packers joined what would become the NFL. Um, title Town is nothing without titles. Add to the 1897 banner town, title, town team titles in 1898, 1903, 1911, 1913, 1915, 1917, 1919, and 1920, and the Packers' 13 NFL championships, and you've got some, you've got something to crow about. Fred Holbert warrants the appreciation of every Green Bay football fan. After all, Fred's the guy who brought organized football here in 1895 as athletic uh, athletic trainer for the YMCA, located on the city's west side at the time. Holbert was the very first to organize the young men uh, of the city for a public display of the young sport. Fred came to Green Bay via Beaver Dam's Wayland Academy. So you see double confirmation here. That is where he played ball at, where he learned to play the bone-busting game of football and was a popular member of the school's 1894 squad. He also shined in intercollegiate track and field days and was wide, widely celebrated for the skills he displayed. Quote, it's safe to say that once the game is introduced, it will be one of the most popular amusements ever seen in Green Bay, said the Sunday Gazette of Holbert's efforts. Holbert's role in Green Bay was replicated across the nation. Guys would go off to college, learn football, and carry the game and their passion for it with them when they returned home or headed off for parts, or parts unknown. Once settled, they'd get up a team and challenge the guys up and down the railroad line. Think about that. They would go up and down the railroad line to these small towns, every railroad stop, and challenge other guys like, hey, why don't you put your 11 together? Let's get out here and play a ball game. Um, a football network was created that would evolve into sundry, is what it says, S-U-N-D-R-Y, sundry leagues, and eventually into the NFL. Um, in 1897, they brought home Title Town's first title, amassing 142 points while surrendering just six points over five games. They played five games. They outscored their opponents 142 to six. Fred Holbert was a beast, it sounds like. <laughs> to be sure, championship uh, championships back then weren't what they are today. Neither was the game of football. Guys died playing the game. Between 1901 and 1907, 101 men died playing football. And declaring that you were champions was something akin to 
to uh, to claiming that you were the fastest gun in town. If you'd won most or all of your games against the best teams in your area, then you posted notice in the local newspaper that you were, quote, the champions, and you awaited to see who said you weren't. I love how they draw that comparison of, of the fastest gun, right? Because you hear the, the stories of the, of the Wild West and, you know, the guys, you know, fighting it out in the saloon. and I mean, they would have a difference, right? They'd have, a you know, just a, a simple difference. And they go out in the street and have a gunfight over it, right? Um, I, don't, I don't mean to laugh, but I just immediately thought of the uh, the Chappelle Show episode where Charlie Murphy's telling the story about how uh, Rick James slapped him. But that's uh, that's a story for a different pot. Anyway, um, <laughs> not to worry. While Facebook wasn't around, the newspapers kept the uh, kept it flowing. And in some other towns, towns team thought they were better than you or objected to you claiming the crown then you defy what was sure to come, um, often via their newspaper. So you've got these teams and these local towns talking trash to each other through their newspapers. You imagine going into town. Imagine Fred rolling into town, has something to do, you know, whether it was work or just traveling or whatever. He goes into a town, he picks up a local newspaper and be like, yeah, that team over there in Green Bay thinks they're better than our 11, and they're too scared to take us on something like I mean, it's just hilarious how they use the newspaper to talk trash. I think it's awesome. No such counter came uh, for the 1897 Green Bay team. However, as they whipped the opposition, their final contest, a Thanksgiving Day flogging of Fond du Lac 11, 62 to nothing. So they beat Fond du Lac's 11, 62 to zero. Two key figures on Green Bay's 1897 team were Tom T.P. Silverwood and Tom, uh, I think you say it, it's uh, – Scanandador, I believe is how you say his name. Indeed, they sat next to one another, prominently positioned in the center of the team's proud photograph. Silverwood had come to Green Bay on a bicycle prior to the 1896 season. A uh, uh, recent grad of the UW-Madison Law School where he'd also play football. So this guy went to law school, rode a bike to Green Bay in 1897 to join the team. At the onset of the 1896 football season, Silverwood, Silverwood was coaching the Acanto te- town team. A few games in, he'd end up playing with Green Bay. By the con- conclusion of the season, Holbert had stepped back and Silverwood had become team captain, a post he'd hold through the 1898 campaign. Uh, Scanandador, God, I know I'm butchering his name. I apologize. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that's it. Scanandador's journey to the Green Bay lineup had taken a uh, decidedly different course. Like other native kids of the era, he'd been shipped off to Carlisle Indian Boarding School and force-fed the white man's ways. He also learned the game of football. Carlisle would later become much celebrated as the football home of Pop Warner and Jim Thorpe. Scanandador was such a powerhouse at running back that his teammates determined to pay him $20 a game, making him the only paid player in the first professional football player in Green Bay history. So, Scanandador was the very first professional athlete in Green Bay history. He was paid $20 a game. And you hear how they kind of set race aside for this football team. That's what I love about sports. You know, it doesn't matter your background. It doesn't, it doesn't matter how rich or poor you were growing up. It doesn't matter if you're black, white, yellow, green, none of that matters. Right. 
when you're on a team and you're fighting for that one cause, you set all that stuff aside and the team is what's most important. I just thought that was the coolest story. And uh, again, I wouldn't have uncovered if, uh, if Mandy hadn't bought me this book. So <laughs> say thanks to her. And uh, you know, we could have taken some time and dolled that story up and really made it, you know, uh, you know, a lot more detailed. But what I wanted to do was kind of leave it open-ended. I wanted to lay the foundation for it and say, hey, here's who Fred Holbert was, right? This is when he got to Green Bay. This is how football was formed in his life. This is what he brought to Green Bay. He took it down the railroad line and, and really introduced it to everything, everyone throughout the state of Wisconsin, and it spread like wildfire. And these were the grassroots of the professional, the game that we know today to be professional football. Um, now, you fast forward to 1919, Curly Lambeau obviously played high school ball in Green Bay. He goes on to Notre Dame for a year, gets sick, comes back home, meets George Calhoun. They found the Packers and start their Sandlot team. Guys, the only reason that they had the idea to start a Sandlot team is because Fred Holbert in 1895 already started that tradition of having a quote-unquote town team. And you think about everything that's fallen into place for the Green Bay Packers to be formed and to be the professional team that they are today. I mean, it's remarkable. It's, uh, as Cliff Crystal, the, the team historian says, it's the, the greatest the greatest story in sports, right? It really is. So hope you guys enjoyed that. What we're going to do is take a, uh, a quick break. We're going to pay a few bills. When we get back on the other side, um, we're going to give you a little update from some of the coaches as Rob Domofsky's Twitter was lighting up, just kind of talking about quotes uh, from the coaching staff. So we're just going to hit on a few of those. I'm going to give a little bit of my feedback on it, a little bit of my opinion, and then we'll get you guys out of here. But again, we're going to take a quick commercial break. We all have smartphones, and we all know they're pretty amazing, but they also can be amazingly distracting, especially when we're around other people. So U.S. Cellular wants us to reset our relationship with our phones by putting down our phones for five. That's right, a company that sells phones wants us to put down our phones. And to see what we find, learn more at uscellular.com forward slash built for us. In the hobby, it's not easy being a fan of ripping packs or repacks. We get all hyped up thinking we're going to get some high-value Jordan Love card, but with zero transparency on available cards and hit rates, it's all just a shot in the dark. Until now, introducing Slab Packs from ArenaClub.com, the only repack that provides real value, a complete view on all possible cards, and clear hit rates for each one. Now when I buy Slab Packs on Arena Club, it finally feels like I know what I'm getting. And honestly, the best thing for me and my son is the fact that we're kind of novices into this. When I walk into a card shop with my son, and a card says it costs $40, kind of just taking his word for it that that's a good value. So I appreciate the transparency on grading, as well as just getting excited about seeing what you could potentially get. Right now, you can get 10% off your first purchase by going to arenaclub.com slash packdaddy. Wow, that's crazy offer. 10% off a $400 slab pack. That's 40 bucks right there. Anyways, that's arenaclub.com slash packdaddy for 10% off your first purchase. Passion, drive, and patience. The formula for winning championships is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. Superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED headlights, and more. Whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. 
And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to make your car the MVP and bring home huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. All right. So, Rob Domoski was blasting out some tweets and... uh I personally like this time of year, guys. I don't know if you guys feel the same way, um, you guys and gals, but I don't know, man. The closer we get to camp, I get really, really excited. Um, and I just love – I love hearing from the coaches, but also they're kind of setting the stage. You, what they're doing, if they're, if they're smart and they're good at what, they're, what they do PR-wise, they're setting expectations for not only uh, the team but also the fans, the media, everyone, right? And – you know, anyone, this is something that Michael Lombardi talked about, and, and I, actually in Bill Walsh's book, I think it's called uh, uh, The Winning Edge or How to Obtain the Winning Edge. He talked about how head coaches, even in his time back in the 80s and, and early 90s, were becoming more PR people than they were actually coaches, right? And when you speak to the media, just like Michael Lombardi said, which, like I said, he got to work under Bill Walsh, he got to work under Al Davis, Bill Belichick, on and on and on. He said that when you speak to the media, there's so many coaches, this goes straight over their head. And that's why coaches need coaches. He talks about this all the time. It's because it's your opportunity to talk to the team. You may be talking to a camera. You may be talking to a room full of reporters, but you're really talking to your team. So you you need to envision that your team sitting out there rather than a bunch of you know reporters. And, and knowing that they're going to hear every single word you say, what's the message you want to get across? There are some coaches that are great at that. There are some coaches that are absolutely oblivious and they think this is their time to shine and show their personality and be cute. Right. And uh, I don't know, man, it's, I like to kind of read the tea leaves and I like to hear what the coaches are saying, because I, do, I think it does give you a little insight when you paint that picture, not just, I'm going to take what he says word for word verbatim that, Hey, this is exactly what's going on. No, look at it through the eyes of if this is a good coach and he knows how to use this opportunity to speak to the team. What's the message he's trying to convey to the team? Okay, so let's jump right into it. Rob Domoski said, O-line coach Luke Buckus says he isn't concerned about how David Bakhtiari will approach this year without Aaron Rodgers, given how close those two are. Quote, I think you know Dave has juice and will always have juice. Dave's going to be fine. There's been a lot of talk about David Bakhtiari, and, man, I didn't plan on getting into this. Um, I knew that he was talking about Bach, but this is the perfect time to kind of give my opinion over the, on the whole David Bakhtiari situation. Whew, let's try to uh, try to not get heated here. But all of a sudden now we want David Bakhtiari gone. And when I say we, I know it's not all Packer fans. I know it's not the majority of Packer fans. But there are some that now all of a sudden, because David Bakhtiari is still friends with Aaron Rodgers, we want him gone. Now, some some of you are going, that's not why we want him gone, Clay. Why is it? When I ask that question on Twitter, people respond with, it's because he got smart with the uh the team uh the team media, all right? Because they put out their schedule release and he bashed the 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 media group over that, right? The guy who's over social media for the Packers. First of all, he didn't bash him. He knows the guy on a first name basis, and he was just picking at him. I mean, you want to ask my opinion? I think the video sucked. That's just my opinion. Now, could I do better? I didn't put a video together, right? So who cares what my opinion is? But to sit here and pretend like, okay, if you're 
if you tell me it's not because he's still friends with Aaron Rodgers that you don't want him cut, it's because he 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 uh, he bullied the media guy on Twitter with a joke. I'm sorry, man. You you're losing credibility every every level that we dig deeper here. Okay, and then some say, well, no, did you not see his post on social media? where Aaron posted the picture of uh, him with some Jets teammates out and about, whatever it was, and he said, um, let me go. There were fans that were pretending or had convinced themselves, I don't know, maybe maybe they really convinced themselves, that David Bakhtiari in that tweet was asking the Packers to let him go. Like, that's the level we've got to. I read the tweet, and guys, listen, you know I'm not the sharpest tool in the shed. I'm I'm dumber than a brick. But when I read that tweet, I read it, I knew exactly what David Bakhtiari was saying. He was being sarcastic, saying to Aaron Rodgers, you got to let me go, man. You got to let me go. Stop worrying about me. Stop trying to uh, trying to make me jealous, right? You know, when, when you break up with someone and they go out and they find that date, right, and they try to rub it in your face, David Bakhtiari was painting that picture. Like, the only reason you're doing this is because you want me back. You want me there in New York with you. You got to let me go. It was a joke. It was a freaking joke. And now we've got to the point where David Bakhtiari needs to be let go. We just need to get him out of here. He obviously isn't, isn't what it, you know, he isn't all in with being a Green Bay Packer. Come on, man. If this is the case and we want everybody gone that's still friends with with Aaron Rodgers, then, okay, we need to cut Keyshawn Nixon or trade him. We need to get rid of Russell Douglas, who was wanting 12 back. We need to get rid of Christian Watson because Christian Watson just spoke absolutely glowingly of Aaron Rodgers. We need to get rid of Aaron Jones. Aaron Jones talked glowingly this uh, this past offseason about how Aaron – um, made him feel so comfortable his rookie year and how he's been one of his best friends on his team. He's always had his back and said, you're one of my favorite people in this organization. I guess we got to get rid of him too. Hey, you know what's funny? We got to get rid of Matt LaFleur. Matt LaFleur this offseason said it, it, it came out of his mouth, Aaron Rodgers' play and everything Aaron Rodgers has done. He said, I can't thank him enough for everything he's done for my family and many, many other people in this organization where he got them contract extensions through his MVP caliber play. Right. So I guess we need to get rid of Matt LaFleur, too. It Come on, guys. Like, it's ridiculous. And I didn't plan on going down this road. We just had an awesome history segment. And some of you guys are like, man, I want to dig into Fred Holbert a little bit more. I got you. But he's having to address this. Luke Buckus is has, having to answer a question. They there were people in the organization, when I say the organization, the media, fans, everybody, you know, just in the Packer family as a whole, that were so sick and tired of hearing about Aaron Rodgers. And here we are still talking about Aaron Rodgers. It absolutely blows my mind. Like, that, the question should never even have been presented to Luke Buckus to have to even freaking answer. Hey, do you think, you think David Bakhtiari is going to struggle now that his best friend's gone? He's a freaking professional athlete. Like, you, first of all, have you seen his paycheck? I don't think he's worried about Aaron. I don't. But anyway, I like how Luke handled that. You know, Luke says, I think you know Dave has juice and will always have juice. Dave's going to be fine. That was the message he sent to David Bakhtiari and the team, not the media, right? But I still – I just think it's a silly question. You wanted him gone. You, you kicked and screamed like a bunch of freaking babies. And I know it's not – I know it's a very small amount of people that did that last year. You finally got him out of here. He's gone. And you won't stop talking about it. It blows my mind. On to the next coach. Tight end coach John Dunn. 
He said uh, rookies Luke Musgrave and Tucker Craft have, quote, more similarities than differences right now in terms of body types and speed, bigger guys, longer, run well, smart. We'll just have to see where it takes us. Um, so what he's saying there, what's the nugget? In my opinion, the nugget is they've got more similarities than differences. What has been the, the main topic when it comes to the tight ends? I asked Mike Wall about it. Um, I think me and Matt talked about it a little bit on the pod yesterday. A lot of people are saying, well, which one's going to feel which one? I've heard a lot of people say Luke Musgrave is going to be that Tunyon role. Uh, Tucker Craft's going to be the Mercedes Lewis role. I said at the Mike Wall, he cut me off and said, there is no Mercedes Lewis. Mercedes Lewis is one of one, <laughs> right? But I think what tight ends coach John Dunn is doing here is he's painting this picture that, hey, we expect them to do both things. We expect them to be very interchangeable. It's not just going to be Luke's going to be the Y and, uh, you know, uh, Tucker Craft is going to be the attached. And if we're not running an attached formation, then Tucker Craft isn't ever going to play that role. I think they're molding these two tight ends for camp. They're going to have them compete against each other. And worst case scenario, the competition's so close, it forces you to lean on that 12 personnel a little bit more, right? And I think that's what we all want. So I thought that was pretty interesting how he handled that question. Up next, we had the running backs coach, Ben Simmons. And Rob Domoski tweets out, how can Aaron Jones and A.J. Dillon best help Jordan Love? Packers running back coach Ben Sermons – I'm sorry, I said Simmons. It's, I think it's called Sermons is how you pronounce it. He said, quote, making sure they're on point with their own jobs and being leaders so that he doesn't have to worry about taking on the brunt of those things. I absolutely loved that response. And I'm going to tell you the first thing that came to mind. And this is how you know it's probably – uh, not necessarily the truth. Uh, you know, everybody's truth can be a little bit different, right? We, you know, some people have differing opinions. That's what makes the world go round. But typically the first thing that pops in your mind is the most honest answer you can give or most honest response you can give to any question or comment that you're responding to. The first thing that went in my mind was A.J. Dillon missing that block on the interception that we threw to end the game against the Lions. Nobody's talked about that. I talked about it on Chalk Talk, but – the people who like to paint this picture that it was Matt LaFleur, Aaron Rodgers' fault, and it just what a horrible game plan. Aaron played like crap and just put it on the shoulders of just a few. They don't even mention that A.J. Dillon completely missed his block. Now, I'm not here to bash A.J. Dillon, right? It is what it is. It was one bad play. It just so happened that Aaron tried to chuck it up to Christian to give him a play on it. Christian, you know, didn't look back because he's running a nine route. And, you know, it was just a it was a busted play because of protection. That's what Aaron was mad about. He stood up. Guys, we heard it over and over and over all year long. You've seen it on tape. That is definitely one of Dylan's weaknesses is he's not a great pass protector. You know, that's the thing that made Philip Taylor uh, – or I'm sorry, Patrick Taylor so valuable last year was he was an ex, he was excellent in pass protection, right? And, and Aaron Jones does a really, really good job as well. I feel like that's not A.J. Dillon's strong point. Now, why do I mention that? Well, why is A.J. Dillon in on pass protection? You're not putting your – uh, best your players in the best position to be successful and do what it is they do best, right? If you've got him in on pass protection and you know that's his weak spot of his game. Um, so when I read that quote, making sure they're on point, you know, what can what can these running backs do to help a young Jordan Love? That was the question. He said, making sure they're on point, making sure their own jobs are taken care of, being leaders so that he, being Jordan Love, doesn't have to worry about taking on the brunt of those things. Like, but before we start trying to, you know, Paint these, paint these guys out in this running back room out to be these heroes. Like, we need to get good at our craft. We need to make sure we're not making the mistakes. We need to make sure that we're leading by example, leading from the front and not missing a crucial block with the freaking game on the line. 
right? I love that response. I've been following A.J. Dillon on Twitter for a long time now and seeing some of his comments here lately. Somebody criticized him the other day not running through ankle tackles, and I loved his response, man. A.J. responded was like, he didn't say, oh, shut up. You don't know what you're talking about. You're fat and out of shape. You ain't, you ain't got a clue. You've never been a professional athlete. He acknowledged it and said, I do need to get better. Man, that's a guy I want on my team right there. That's someone who's willing to acknowledge that they've got stuff to work on, and, and Lord knows he's willing to put in the work. I want to see A.J. Dillon come out this year and have a monster year. That would be awesome. So let's move on to one of the the uh, the more popular coaches uh, as far as everybody wanting to hear from him, right, and that's Tom Clements. It's amazing that we've come to this point. You know, uh, Aaron Rodgers suggests that we hire Tom Clements, right? And and Brian Gutekunst has a history with Tom Clements, too. A lot of people don't understand this, but but Goody was one of the head scouts for Ted Thompson when Ted Thompson was GM. Well, obviously, Ted Thompson put that coaching staff together with Mike McCarthy. Mike McCarthy obviously hiring Tom Clements. So Goody was in the building. You know, everybody, everybody likes to paint like the only reason they hired Tom Clements is because Aaron wanted him. They're just catering to the crybaby. That's what they always said. They don't mention that Goody loves Tom Clements. They don't, they don't mention that Matt LaFleur has absolutely raved over Tom Clements. Tom Clements is one of the few people that was responsible for molding Aaron Rodgers into the player he was. You want that guy coaching Jordan Love, right? And uh, anyway, it says Packers uh, quarterback coach Tom Clements offered all the obligatory praise for Jordan Love's skill set, but also said, quote, last year during the season, he would know the game plan in and out. So what Tom Clements is saying here, think about it, guys. He's talking to the team, okay? He's not talking to the media. He's he's using this as an opportunity to address the team. They're asking, you know, when they ask him, hey, about Jordan Love, this is what he says. Last year during the season, he would know the game plan in and out. Like, he's telling the team, Jordan Love knows the entire playbook. He's had three years to sit and watch one of the greatest quarterbacks in the history of the game run this offense, and he's been studying and taking notes. And I guarantee you there was times when Aaron made mistakes, just like when Brett made mistakes. Aaron took notes and said, I'm not going to do that when I get the opportunity. I guarantee you Jordan Love did the same thing watching Aaron Rodgers play, right? But again, Tom Clements is sending that message to the team, and especially the offense more specifically. Listen, this is our team leader, Jordan Love, and he knows this offense as good as anybody, just as good as I do. You guys need to shut up and listen to him in the huddle, listen to him when he's making checks at the line, and and be willing to work as hard for him as he is for you. I think it's a, a great quote. Tom Clements is awesome. I'm glad he's back in Green Bay. All right, next coach. This was, uh, uh, again, Rob Domoski tweeted out, Packers don't have so-called, quote, veteran wide receivers, but past game coordinator Jason Vrabel made this point. Quote, Christian and Rome, talking about Romeo Dobbs, played so much as rookies that there's guys in year three or four that some people consider vets that have less reps. Dobbs played 529 snaps. Watson played 507 last year. You know, the wide receiver room has worried me a little bit. I'm excited about Jaden Reed. I'm very excited to see what Christian Watson can do. You guys know I think Romeo Dobbs can be a solid number three as it sits right now. Let's hope he projects into a uh, – or advances into a number, a solid number two wide receiver. But that's one thing I didn't really think about was the snap count. And I thought that was really, really good, what Vrabel said there. You know, hey, look, you know, people are looking at them like they're not experienced just because they're second-year players. But there's some there's some wide receivers in the league that have been in the league for three or four years, and they still don't have the snap count that Romeo Dobbs and Christian Watson have from their rookie year. They're just as experienced as any of the any other vet across the league as far as, you know, being in the league for three or four years. 
what's the message that Jason Brabel is sending to the rest of the team? These are our two wide receivers. These are our two go-to guys. These are the guys. You may look at them like second-year players, but these are veterans because look at their snap count. Young receivers, your Dubosas, your Jaden Reeds, even Samori Torre, right, who had very limited snaps but came in in the same rookie class there with with uh, with Watson and Dobbs. The message he's sending to the team, Bill Walsh 101, right, talking to your team through the media is letting that wide receiver room and probably even the tight end room know these two guys right here, they've had significant amount of snaps, over 500 snaps each in this Matt LaFleur offense. Get, get, on, the pay, get on the same page with them. Get linked up with them. We don't have any Alan Lazards. We don't have any uh, Randall Cobbs to help bridge that gap. We're going to be leaning on Christian Watson and Romeo Dobbs to lead by example. And I, I get really excited about Romeo Dobbs, um, Christian Watson especially, but but Romeo Dobbs last year, you guys know he had problems early in camp, you know, catching the football, and he cleaned that up a lot better uh, than he did going into camp. And how did he do it? There was reports coming out like crazy that he was every day after practice out there catching balls on the jugs machine, right, making himself better. Uh, one thing about this uh, this Packers front office, man, when they draft people, they draft high-character players and hard workers. He said also, uh, Vrabel said uh, the third third rookie wide receiver from last year, Samori Torre, quote, looks unbelievable right now, said he's put on 8 to 10 pounds. Samori Torre showed some flashes last year in the limited time, you know, obviously catching the touchdown pass, the scramble drill. That What I seen on from Samori Torre last year, and it was a very, very, very minute amount. Obviously, the PFF grade was extremely low. We've talked about that. But when we talked about the uh, the plaster play, right, the scramble drill, if you will, I think uh, Coach Hahn and I broke this down on Chalk Talk, where when the play broke down, Aaron ended up finding Romeo Dobbs. I believe it was the Buffalo game. I could be wrong, but he found Romeo Dobbs in the back of the end zone. Romeo Dobbs n- played that so natural that as soon as the play broke down, he knew to uh, run the scramble drill and just get open for Aaron. And uh, that's something you can't really you can't really teach or coach. I guess you could teach it, but it's hard to coach that into a player. You just got to have that feel that when things when things go awry, when things break down, I'm just going to get open and make a play. And I'm going to get my eyes on my quarterback. I'm going to make sure I get body control, box out, all those things, and just give us a chance to turn a busted play into a positive play. So, um, yeah, I'm excited to see what Samori Torre can do. I love the idea of Jaden Reed, Christian Watson, and Romeo Dobbs can't battle him for that number one. Honestly, it'll probably be Christian Watson and Jaden Reed fighting for number one right? Along the way, whoever loses that is going to be your number two receiver. And then have Romeo Dobbs, Samori Torre, Grant DuBose, a couple other guys fighting for that number three spot. The one thing this camp is not going to lack is competition. And I'm telling you right now, man, that's the, that is the number one tool you can have in your bag when it comes to putting together any kind of organization, whether it's business, football, baseball, whatever, is when you have competition across the board on your roster, you're going to get the absolute best out of every single person in that locker room. You know, it's what we talked about with Josh Myers. There's there's no competition there at center, or there wasn't last year, right? So it's like he just kind of, okay, I'm the center. No, dude, put Zach Tom in there, man. Let him fight for that. Put Elton Jenkins in there. Let him fight for that that center spot. I would prefer to keep Elton and, and, and Bach in their spots, left tackle, left guard. But center is, in my opinion, more important than guard. That's just me personally. I think that center is a tier two position of importance, and I don't see guard there. I think left tackle is tier one. Center is tier two. 
and the others you can just kind of fill them in, you know, and, and I'm not saying you should neglect them, but you really got to key in on left tackle and center. Man, let's create a competition there. I would love to see Zach Tom come out and fight like hell for that center spot and uh, and make that center position better because, you know, like Mike Wall pointed out the other day on the pod, um, you know, uh, Myers definitely took a step back last year. And, again, Myers may beat Tom out for that center position. That's great. That means the competition worked and you got Myers to raise his game to another level. And that's the whole purpose of not just – not just mini camps, not just training camp, not just preseason, but even throughout the regular season, there should be this constant. There should be this constant drive from within the locker room that we're going to make each other better. And like Vince Lombardi said, there you want to be motivated. Threaten somebody to lose their job, that'll motivate them. If you're scared that you're going to lose your job, that'll motivate you quicker than anything. And it's not to instill fear into people to be like, you know, overly demanding. And I'm, you know, I'm the big guy up here on the hill, and you'll do what I say, little guy. It's no, 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 no. It's about getting people to rise up to the best version of themselves, and and that should be the overall goal in training camp. And I want competitions at every freaking position. I want Lucas Van Ness battling like heck for edge. I want him battling for some of those interior spots in the sub packages, all of that. I want Devontae Wyatt. I want Devontae Wyatt competing with Kenny Clark for that number one defensive tackle spot. That's what I want. Like competition is what's going to breed excellence, right? And, you know, it's like Lombardi used to say, and Bart Starr said it better than anybody, you know, repeating what, uh, what Lombardi said, Coach Lombardi. He said, you know, we're going to strive for perfection knowing full well we can't catch it. It, it is – impossible to be perfect nobody is perfect but we're gonna we're gonna try like hell to reach perfect because we know along that path we will catch excellence in the process and he said he said that to them their very first training camp and bart Starr said that lombardi looked him right in the eye and said i am not remotely interested in being just good and bart responded and said and this is how a winner responds that. he said i didn't even need a chair to sit on i was just but, and he, he acted like he was leaned up. You know, he was like, I was just ready to go. Like, I have waited so many years to hear someone come in here and talk like that and create a competition, this competitive atmosphere where we can be the best versions of ourselves. So um, it's pretty cool, man. Pulling that out from Lombardi's era, listen to these new coaches talking about, uh, you know, you know, the message that they're sending to their team through the media, right? All of the question marks across the board. I know you can hear it in my voice. I'm smiling. I am grinning like a possum in a dumpster, dude. I am so fired up for this season. But it's crazy because the current coaches, back to Vince Lombardi, back to Curly Lambeau, all the great players in between, right? The Jack Venisi's in the front office and, and you know, everybody. None of that happens without the person that we let off with, and that's Fred Holbert. 1895. Just, just, Messing around and creating a new sport that was born out of rugby on college campuses. He rolls into town in the Green Bay in 1895. And without that guy, we're not sitting here talking on this podcast about the great Green Bay Packers. So pretty exciting stuff. Anyway, I'm going to get out of here. I've babbled enough. I really appreciate y'all hanging out with us, man. I hope y'all have an awesome Friday. Um, if you need anything, hit me up uh, on email. And like I said, shoot me a text, 865-658-5824. We look forward to hearing from you. Everybody have an awesome, awesome day. As always, let's go out and be the change we want to see in the world. Go Pack Go. ...to restart the game. And this one carrying into the end zone about four yards deep. Here comes Dixon to the five. Left hash marks 10, 15. Hits a hole hard. He's to the 25, 30. Breaks into the clear. Keyshawn Nixon is off to the races. It's Secretary of the Belmont. Down the split in time. No one will catch him. It's a touchdown. My goodness. Came into the game.
And he just took it right up the gut through the heart of the Minnesota Viking coverage unit.